with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. The world economy has faced a lot of challenges this year, and many international institutions expect global growth to slow in the year 2024 due to elevated interest rates, higher energy prices, and geopolitical uncertainties. The OECD projects a global GDP growth rate of 2.9 percent in the year 2023, followed by a slowdown to 2.7 percent in. 2024, and the International Monetary Fund also forecasts a deceleration in global growth. So, what has happening for the world economy, and what are the challenges waiting ahead? Can the technological advancement deliver new drivers for the global economy? To better understand all these issues, join us on the line now are Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, Yan Liang, professor. Of economics, Willamette University, and also Ina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. So yeah, I will start with you. The OECD and the IMF now they are projecting the global growth will likely to slow in the year 2024. So what's your estimation? Is it likely that the 2024 will be more difficult than this year? Yeah, I think they are talking about the growth rate of 2024 lower than this year's forecast. And so, as you mentioned,、um, some of the factors that they take into account are、um, the unabated inflation,、um, still quite high in some countries,、um, still not meeting the inflation target、um, this year. For countries that have inflation targets, 98 percent of them are above the inflation rate target. And next year, 2024. Um, still, they think 89% of the countries they are going to be still above the inflation target. So that could continue to um, prompt um, some maybe monetary tightening.、Uh, maybe not as much as this year,、um, but still, that high interest rate is going to start to weigh on the economy more. So that's one of the concerns. And the second one is, as you mentioned, the energy prices could still be high. Um, as the Russia-Ukraine war still wage on, and the regional、uh, conflict in the Middle East could still also weigh on the oil price. So there are a lot of still uncertainties,、um, not to mention the geopolitical,、um, you know, sort of、uh, conflicts and also some uh, tensions. Um, next year, 40 countries will went into、uh, will go into、uh, elections. So that just means that there could be more,、um, you know, political changes, and that could, in some ways,、um, shape their economic outcomes. So overall,、um, I think this forecast is realistic.、Um, but again, there's still a lot of uncertainties、um, that could change the economic outlook for the next year.、Mm. So Anna, so where are we now when it comes to the global economy? Do you think? Well, we're at an inflection point. I mean, as、uh, Yan was、uh, pointing out,、uh, you know, the central banks are, you know, they they met、uh, what eight out of the ten、um, said, look, you know, we're going to keep everything stable. The only exception was Norway.、Um, they're really trying to figure out if you know what's going to happen at the Fed,、uh, mm. because these banks have been defending their currencies. Uh, by raising rates, really in reaction to the Fed, what they want to do is stimulate their economies because they're,、uh, you know, the developed economies of the world are consistently lagging the international growth. So when you know Yan says 2.9, whatever it is, 
um, the developed countries, about half that. The uh, U.S. might be an exception, but we'll see what happens next year. So, I mean, they're trying to figure out what is the path forward. Uh, the political uncertainties continue to drive things. Also, you know, this is what we've seen with the Houthis and the Red Sea is that small groups can now affect the global supply chain. Not, you know, they don't even have to attack. They can just, you know, throw some things around, threaten it, and all of a sudden the shipping companies don't want to go there anymore unless there's a huge fleet of, of ships to protect them. So, you know, the global uncertainties are there. Smaller groups are having a bigger say, can increase uh, polarization, changes in the, um, in you know, election changes that are coming. You see a lot of hardening of rhetoric. Uh, already, you know, we, we've witnessed what happened in Argentina. Everybody's kind of waiting to see what actually uh, comes of that. Um, these these are all unknown factors. And he points to this larger issue of is the world going to come together, start cooperating, or will it continue to, uh, you know, fractionalize and go in, in different directions? Uh, the last part is makes it more inefficient and mm-hmm. therefore less growth. And so, Dr. Joe Mee, so what do you think are the big events or memorable moments for this year's global economy? And what are challenges lying ahead? Yeah, for this year, I think there are many things that we have to remember. Something from the good aspect is that we see a lot of discussions uh, between the countries on uh, trying to establish a better mechanism to reducing the uncertainties of the trade and the investment. And uh, there are a lot of uh, free trade agreements has been signed. Uh, I mean, a lot of uh, with China and also with other countries. They want to do something good to to reduce uncertainty. Well, there are still many things which is not that good for the economy in the world. We still see there are so many new policies like from United States, uh, small yard and hyphens. It's a real uh, harming uh, the economy and the expectation of the companies and the market. Well, there are still a lot of uh, very high, I mean, a very high uh, interest rate in the United States, which has put a lot of countries under the pressure of the debt issue. Issues. And I would also say that uh, there are some kind of consensus being reached in the uh, mechanism or, uh, you know, the forum of uh, APEC or G20. They are reaching some kind of, uh, you know, the consensus like for the improvement of the supply chains and some of the corporations by better share of the information. But I, I still argue that uh, the policies are, especially in the multilateral platform of WTO, and some of them from the unilateralism of certain countries are really, you know, having a very bad effect on the people's expectation about the recovery of the economies. And these are really, you know, something that uh, uh, have uh, interactions between the real economy and the virtual economy, which is uh, one of a very important uh, impacts on the inflation and some of the, you know, the interest differences in different countries. Mm. So, yeah, so a lot of experts and big banks say that many big economies will avoid the recession for next year. Do you agree? Well, I think it really depends. Um, the United States was doing pretty well. Um, so they're expected to grow uh, around 24 to 2.6 percent, depending who you ask. 
but next year, the growth will slow down to around 1%. Um, the lowest uh, estimate was 0.9%, or um, the highest uh, that I've seen so far is about 1.3% for 2024. So for the United States, I think it's quite peculiar uh, in this sense, um, because they have been uh, quite energy independent. They have been the net oil exporter. Um, so they are able to shield themselves from the energy crises. Um, they also have has passed laws uh, back in 2021, for example, the Infrastructure and uh, Job Creation Act in 2021. So that really allowed them to invest more um, that helped to stimulate the economy. So despite the Fed, you know, uh, having 13 times of interest hikes, um, the, the economy held up pretty well this year. But that said, I think next year there are a lot of uncertainties. Um, for one is there will be a, a presidential election. And if the Republicans take the White House, um, I think that would really blow away um, a lot of their investments in the green energies and green tech. Um, not to mention the high interest rates will continue to weigh on the economy. Uh, even if they have done their cuts as uh, you know the market has expected, the interest rate would probably still remain at 4.75% at the end of next year. And that is still very high, historically speaking. So what that means are two. One is when you look at the real estate market. Uh, right now, many people are still locking the 4%, you know, 30-year uh, mortgage rates. But soon, uh, many people would still would start to look at, you know, 7% of the mortgage rates. And so that would really dampen the real estate market. On the other spectrum is when you look at, you know, consumer credit cards, when you look at uh, corporate bonds. Um, by the way, this year, there has been almost double the amount of you know, bond uh, defaults um, for the high yield bonds in the US and some of the leverage loans. So all that means is the private sector could be in debt distress um, because of the high interest rate. So all that means is that, you know, this tightened uh, monetary policy would continue to drag down the economy. Mm. Now, the European economy is another story. Um, and I think, you know, maybe we can elaborate a little bit more. But I think, you know, they're still facing energy crises, the long term, um, you know, uh, productivity slowdown, the lack of in investments in their critical infrastructure. So all this could really drag down the economy um, in the medium and long term. Mm. So, Aina, so for the U.S., actually, economists believe that the focus in the new year will shift to the interest rate cuts as the Fed can continue its fight against the inflation. But the Fed doesn't just cut the rates for just because it feels like it. And there has to be a reason, right? So what possible reason would they cut the interest rates for the next year? Well, as Ian pointed out, you know, um, one percent growth is not exactly uh, ideal. Uh, you know, there are concerns about the recession, uh, dis despite uh, you know all this stuff about the uh, U.S. economy growing. Uh, the number of bankruptcies, highest ever uh, defaults on loans uh, with personal and uh, also uh, with business. Uh, you have the greatest number of homeless. Uh, out there, uh, you know, it's it is not an ideal situation, and there is a lot of stress being felt uh, by the majority of people. Sixty-one percent of the people out there are still having, uh, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, all of a sudden, now uh, wages are rising, but rising wages that are not linked to productivity is just inflation. So, you know, the, the Fed is in the situation where they have to. 
worry about uh, in inflation, which they can't control because it's on the labor side. Uh, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with goods coming from overseas. In fact, those are, are less expensive. Mm. Uh, but at the uh, same time, uh, you know, the recession uh, could be looming. Uh, it could easily switch down. There are a lot of uh, political uh, and conflict issues that are out there. I mean, Gaza has not been good for the U.S. economy. Mm. And so what are the main challenges lying ahead, do you think, for the U.S. economy? Uh, what is the uh, structural problem of it? From the uh, from the U.S. side, I mean, their their problem is that um, you know the outdated infrastructure. Uh, they're not competitive. This reshoring sounds great, except you're subsidizing it twice. Uh, you have to bring the companies back with massive subsidies if they have tried to do with technology, but then on the other end. Um, it doesn't decrease the things, even with the subsidies, uh, but it's just not sustainable. Then you start looking at the debt, $33 trillion and growing. Nothing in sight saying how it's going to be dealt with. You're already, there's concerns about the reception of, of bonds, of treasuries uh, in the market. So, Yan, for the European countries, will the uh, inflationary pressure remain strong for the next year? For example, for Germany, it has been the weakest performing G7 economy, you know, since the year 2019. So how do you explain that? And if German economy won't see a strong rebound, do you think the European economy will also face the headwinds? Right. I think that is the concern. Um, according to, you know, the IMF, um, they're looking at, you know, for advanced uh, European countries, um, their growth rate is going to be low, 0.7% um, this year and then 1.2% next year. And so you're right, I think Germany is really facing a lot of economic headwinds. Uh, one of the most important ones, of course, was the energy crisis and the high energy price. Um, even though they were able to model through um, you know, last year because of the warmer winter, and then this year, likely they're going to be able to weather through. But still, you know, with the high energy prices, the manufacturing sector, and some of the, you know, energy intensive like chemical sector, um, some of the really leading sectors in Germany will be hard hit. And that could lead to some forms of deindustrialization. Um, on top of that, I think, in addition to this really sort of more transitory, hopefully, uh, energy uh, price hike. They also have long-term structural problems. Um, I think we talked about, you know, the labor shortages in some of their uh, really skilled, uh, intensive sectors, um, population aging, and then also the lack of investments in digital infrastructure, for example. And now the most recent, I think, negative blow um, comes from the fact that, you know, the government's 60 uh, billion euros spending in infrastructure was now ruled illegal by the high court um, because the contention was that money was earmarked for um, pandemic spending. So now the, if the government wants to spend it on, you know, green technology or energies, green energies, um, then that is that is illegal. And I think that is a big blow to the economy um, because without this public investment in some of these critical infrastructure, the economy is going to continue to lag behind and the private sector also um they they were hoping the government will be able to you know invest so then they will be able to you know crowd in their own investments uh, but now it seems that would become uh, impossible or unlikely so i think that will continue to weigh on uh, german's economy and you know german germany being in the leading economy in europe if germany is not doing well um, then yes the entire eu economy especially the advanced EU economy is going to lag behind. Mm. Um, 
and inflation could really still be a problem just because of the energy uh, dependency and also um, seeing some wage increases in the service sector and so on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, actually, economists say Asia is expected to continue to account for the bulk of the global growth for next year. So how do you view it? Yeah, I agree. Um, when you look at Asia, um, you know, they dominate in the global economy. Uh, for example, when it comes to trade, um, Asia accounts for 40% of the global trade value, and they have 18 out of the 20 fastest growing trade corridors um, of the world. And China is play a very important role in sort of bringing all these countries together and trade with each other. And one thing that is interesting when you look at China's, uh, you know, now they're expanding their overseas footprints um, with countries that are more in the developing world instead of the developed world, the Europeans or the, the, the Americans. UAE and China's trade is a very interesting example. When you look at last year, um, they, their non-oil trade uh, surged to $72 billion, and that is an 18% increase from 2021. So I think it's likely to see that China is going to um, really tap into these, um, you know, um, developing countries in the global south, uh, barrel initiative countries or the RCEP countries um, and form these very vibrant um, trade connections. And that would help to promote the economy. And of course, India is another bright spot. Um, the IMF is forecasting that they're grow- going to grow at about 6.8 percent um, in 2024. So India's economy is already the fifth economy, uh, largest economy in the world. And with the high growth, um, China and India are going to lead the world. Um, so for India, of course, they have you know great growth potential. It's kind of like China in the late um, 90s and early 2000s. Um, they have fast growing young population. Um, they're investing in their infrastructure. Um, they're also having pretty good you know external environment uh, with this French shoring, reshoring kind of uh, supply chain reshuffling that some of the companies moved to India. But that said, I think they have their own challenges. Um, they still need to boost their skill uh, and education of their workers. They still need to in, uh, in continue to invest in their infrastructure. Um, you know, even though a lot of people are, are saying that, you know, uh, India is winning global supply chain. But when you really look at it, um, I think China still has a lot of advantages that India is not able to catch up. Um, China's, you know, um, uh, real income is still much higher than India. Its infrastructure is complete supply chain. Its quality and skill of the workers are still way higher, uh, way better than um, than India. So I, I think even India has a lot of potential to continue to grow, um, especially, for example, urbanization. Um, only 35% of the population now is in the urban area. Um, but again, nothing comes just natural. Um, they have to really continue to invest and have the right policies to be able to really um, uh, play out their potentials. Mm. And Dr. Zhou, so for China, given China's economy is now more and more connected with the global market, how to ensure a sustainable growth and deal with the challenges? It's a real uh, important question we have to deal with when the country is opening wider, we have many connections. It's uh, not only about the profits, but also about the uncertainties and risks. So I would say that China is trying to strengthen its domestic market by integrating the different regions markets into a bigger one and trying to have a better connections to make the flow of the different uh, uh, different things like the factors like the the capital the people and also many of the intellectual property rights uh, easier 
in China to attract more investors to come here in China to strengthen the stability in the global supply chain. Well, that is the first thing that we have to do to improve our domestic development abilities. Well, the second is we are trying to establish a better uh, FTA networks with other countries. You can find that we are having uh, finished the, the negotiation with Singapore on the uh, a better on a better free trade agreement, and we are uh, negotiating with ASEAN countries for the version three of the free trade agreement. So we include so many new things to. Get guarantee that the cooperation in the new area, like for the digital economies and also green uh, economies corporations will be better connected and protected. Mm -hmm. And the third one, I would say that we are also coping with other countries to establish some mechanism for monitoring the risks. And we are trying to ensure that there are more mechanism that we can ensure if there are some impact, we can deal with that. We can limit the impact in a certain limited areas. So I would say that uncertainty uh, will always there, but China will still keep on opening up. We believe that with a better coordination and uh, information exchanges, we can deal with these uncertainties. Mm. And yeah, so what about other countries in Asia like Japan and Singapore? And do you think the Asian economy has more more reasons to be optimistic. Right. I think Japan's situation is improving. Um, their economy has been really stagnating and also having that deflationary pressure. But now I think things are uh, starting to looking up. Um, their inflation rates start to move into the positive territory. And I think uh, for Singapore, um, you know, they are also taking advantage of the regional dynamics. They have been providing uh, very good financial services, logistics, and also um, you know, um, some of the high-tech uh, R&D and so on and so forth. So I do think that um, for these uh, mature Asian economies, um, they are able to really leverage on the regional dynamics and continue to lead the economy um, and, and to recover um, from, you know, for, in Japan's case, you know, decade-longs of um, stagnation. But still, I think emerging and developing Asia uh, remains to, to be the brighter spot. Um, the IMF actually predicted or forecasted that the emerging and developing Asia are going to grow at 5.2% um, in the coming year. Now, I think one of the things that I um, also wanted to emphasize, uh, in addition to the factors that Dr. Zhou Mi has mentioned in terms of you know how to cope with uncertainty, I think for the region as a whole, not only the regional integration is imp very important, but also very importantly, um, countries are investing heavily in their technologies and innovations. And I think, you know, China is right now taking the lead in many of these areas like AI, like quantum computing, um, you know, autonomous driving, uh, you know, and also a lot of the new energies and um, uh, green technologies. Um, so artificial intelligence, of course. So I think all of these would be really important um, for, you know, these mature, relatively more mature and also leading edge, you know, technological uh, innovations to to continue to flourish uh, in Asia, and that takes not only you know large amounts of investments at home, but also a lot of you know regional cooperation um, around um, the region. So one thing, for example, e-commerce and digital trade, um, that's one of the major I think uh, uh, improvements in the in the trade in the regional trading blocks uh, through RCEP. So what I'm hoping is that you know not only we will have see we'll see more regional integrations, but more on technological innovations and cooperation, and that would really help uh, Asia 
to continue to lead a global economy. Mm, so Aina, so Yan actually mentioned the technological innovation. Actually, the year 2023 was a landmark year for the technological advancement, especially in the field of AI. The generative AI in particular has captured global attention. So some bet on the uh, science and technological innovation. So do you think they will definitely improve the productivity and efficiency of the economy? Well, absolutely. But it brings up as this other issue, um, you know, we were, we were all agreed that, you know, you have uh, nations like India, which have a tremendous, you know, young people, um, but they're not very well educated. They're not trained and they're certainly not able to take a, um, you know, a productive role in the new digital economy. AI uh, gets rid of a lot of the kind of you know, usual stuff, you know, I, the way I look at it, it is AI is kind of like robotics um, in terms of, you know, the old production lines where somebody would sit there and tighten a screw and, you know, do this all day. Instead, now that's done by uh, robots and you're going to have the same thing. Um, lawyers, uh, people who were assembling information, uh, they're just not uh, as much needed. Uh, what is needed is people on the higher end, the people who know what questions to ask so that you get the answers that are going to be useful and productive. So AI, a little bit overhyped right now, but still is going to have a massive impact. Um, and those countries that do not educate their workforces are going to be left behind. Mm -hmm. So yeah, at the end of this year, and when we look forward for the year 2024, where is the world heading to? And where should we invest in? And what are some of the biggest promising industries? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, of course, the biggest challenge um, for the entire global economy is climate change. Um, and with that, I think we would need to invest heavily in, you know, green energies and also some of the really leading edge uh, technologies. And so AI, for example, um, is not only going to help with, you know, automations um, in productivity enhancing, you know, uh, productions, but also it will help to um, achieve, you know, energy conservation. Um, this is one thing that I think many people uh, didn't pay attention to. But when you look at, for example, Google's DeepMind AI in the data centers, they are able to achieve 40% reduction in energy consumption. So a lot of these are connected. So on the one hand, we're going to promote, you know, green energies and green technologies that would help to drive it, drive the uh, productivity growth on the one hand, but also help to conserve energies and materials on the other hand. And I think that is really what it's um, really helped to push the economy forward, but also achieve more sustainable growth. Now, for that to happen, um, not only do we need, you know, heavy investments both at the private sector and public sector, but we also really need countries to work together um, to reduce the kind of geopolitical risks that hamper, you know, R&D, that hamper innovations, that hamper productivity growth um, in the long term. So I think we need both. And for AI and then some of the technologies, you know, we also need to boost, like what I know saying, some other the um, uh, regulations or um, support um, for the current late, uh, for the current workforce. So I think, you know, going forward, um, hopefully we'll have more peaceful um, environment um, for 
you know, technologies to develop and for the economy to grow. So then we'll be able to um, really cope with the common enemy, um, which is climate change. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamette University, Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.